The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndica Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to be touching on one of the most sensitive geopolitical issues in the China-Africa relationship, and it involves the tiny little kingdom of Eswatini and Taiwan. Now, the reason why this is so sensitive is because when any issue comes to us related to Taiwan, it is one of the red line issues that the Chinese take very, very seriously. And Kobus, it came up really early in this year because the Chinese embassy in Pretoria issued a statement related to Iswatini, and uh, that really set off a lot of alarm bells. Tell us a little bit about first Iswatini and then a little bit about the statement. So Iswatini is a, is an independent country surrounded completely by South Africa, um, and it um, it's it's an independent state. It actually it it predates the Republic of South Africa's existence, um, and it is ruled by by a king, um, King Swati, um, and. You know, kind of, he he is an he is uh, Iswatini is the last remaining um, country in Africa to have formal diplomatic relationships with d- d- relations with Taiwan. Um, so the, you know, everything that that happens in Iswatini runs essentially runs through the monarchy. Um, the king has has very high levels of control in the country, um, and since since the statement came out, um, we we've seen. You know the 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 case of the, of Esotini being used in among others uh, in the right wing press in the U.S. as this, as this incident of a small country kind of being bossed around by China, which you know obviously it is a small country and China is a very big country. Um, but we should also keep in mind that Esotini has its own its own in, um, specific human rights issues. Um, it's a, you know, the, the monarchy is an absolute monarchy. Um, there's a lot of criticism of the way that the monarchy rules. Um, in Isotini, the, the king himself is personally very rich, um, and the people of Isotini are very poor, um, with with some of the highest HIV infection rates in the world. So there's a lot of of issues to raise about Isotini outside of the China the China relationship. But the China relationship kind of suddenly cast it into this kind of high contrast in, in international geopolitical terms. You know, where suddenly it's all about it's all about China and America and and you know and the relationship between China and Africa um, and the quest for China to 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 try and kind of push Taiwan out of Africa completely. Um, so Eric, maybe before we go ahead, uh, you should introduce what the, the China Taiwan relationship is really about for people who are newcomers to this issue. A lot of people outside of the China Taiwan kind of sphere don't really understand the distinction between China and Taiwan. And particularly in Africa, I run into this quite a bit. So before we delve into our discussion about Iswatini, let me just walk through some of the the basics about Taiwan. And it is very, very important to note that this is highly contentious. Uh, this is a an unsettled historical issue. So 
Uh, up until 1971, uh, Taiwan was recognized by the United Nations, and that really is a result of the 1949 civil war with China, where China and Taiwan split, uh, and China considers Taiwan to be a renegade province. Uh, then Resolution 2578 was passed in 1971, and that switched UN recognition from Taiwan to China and really became the opening of what's called the One China Policy. And that's something that's been a core tenet of Chinese foreign policy since then to ensure that everybody recognizes China as the sole legitimate power uh, for China and that Taiwan itself is a renegade outlying province. Now, this is something that is not accepted at all in Taiwan, to be fair, uh, but it really became a major international issue back in 1979 when the U.S. then switched its diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing. Uh, and since 1979, China has done uh, it's very best to persuade, to force, to cajole, to whatever you want to call it, uh, basically all other countries who recognize Taiwan to abandon their relationship with Taipei in favor of Beijing. Only a few decades ago, Kobus, it was interesting because Taiwan had a lot of diplomatic relations, including with your own country, South Africa. Uh, that was really just less than 25 years ago. And today, basically 15 countries remain recognizing Taiwan. They're mostly the smallest, poorest countries in the world. We're talking about the Marshall Islands, Palau, Tuvalu, the Vatican. Uh, so it really is, in many ways, uh, these are the, the sunset of Taiwan's diplomatic relations because the Chinese, like what they're doing in Iswatini, are putting on an enormous amount of pressure. So... With all that said, I think we tried to set up the Iswatini Taiwan issue because we want to get to our guests very, you know, as soon as possible. But the idea here is that this is a very, very complicated issue with historical ties that run very, very deep. And so this all kind of popped up on everybody's radar in January when there was an article that came out in the South African newspaper, The Daily Maverick, China Turns the Screws on Iswatini. It was written by freelance journalist Karine Duplessis, who is based in Johannesburg. And joins us on the line for the first time on the show. Welcome. Very much. Very great to have you. It's great to be on the show. Good morning. And then we're also thrilled to have on the program for the very first time, first time going to Iswatini, or formerly known as Swaziland, uh, Becky Makubu, who is the editor of The Nation magazine. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time this morning, Becky. Thank you for having me here. So, Karine, let me start with you, because your article in many ways was triggered by this statement issued from the, uh, the Chinese embassy in Pretoria. And let me just read a, a little bit about the statement so people can get a, a gist of it. Uh, this was published on February 1. It said, no diplomatic relations, no business benefits. And uh, there is only one China, the statement says, in the world, and the government of the People's Republic of China is the sole legitimate government representing the whole of China, including Taiwan. Taiwan is an integral part of China. This is the one China principle or policy. And it goes on to say, uh, it is very hard for the friendly African countries of China to attend any AU summit hosted by a country refusing to recognize one China principle, that's their grammar, and maintaining so-called diplomatic ties with Taiwan. So there's a veiled threat in there. Uh, coming out of the embassy. There was also some logistical issues that they said that people in Iswatini now must go to uh, Pretoria to apply for visas. Tell us a little bit about the background that prompted you to write your story and what the issues are. Yeah, well, Eric, to be frank, um, this story, I, I got I actually got this press release from Becky first, and then all the other opposition guys um, sent the press release. It was doing the rounds on social media, on WhatsApp, 
in Eswatini. And it was issued by your favorite ambassador, Lin Songtian. I, I heard you speaking a lot about him and his diplomatic efforts. And yeah, he, he issued this strongly worded statement. Uh, and uh, I think the background to it is uh, Becky would be able to tell us more about what's happened on his side, because I think he was he was sort of on the front line of, of the push, the diplomatic push last year. But um, but basically, I think that uh, um, China's trying to put the screws on Eswatini. They've been trying to to get it through the king. They've been wooing MPs. MPs have been going to China on on study trips, and this uh, I got the sense was very much aimed at the business community, um, at you know putting the screws on the business community. Because I know on this side, uh, the business community is trying very hard to get a positive PR for Eswatini, especially to the outside world. Um, I've had some uh, old PR friend contacting me and saying, oh, you know, we're, we're helping out with the PR um, and, and it comes from the business side. They want um, Eswatini to look better to the outside because they want more business because the economy hasn't been doing well. Uh, so, so yeah, so I think I think that's kind of the background to it, that um, that China realized if it wants to push into, into Eswatini, it should turn the screws on, on all the sectors in Eswatini. Um, but then also, I guess, and, and Becky might be able to talk more about this because he's he's taught me a lot about what I know about the China Swatini relationship. So maybe I'll leave it to him to 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 talk about the um, the sort of push last year that his interview with the with the ambassador. So Becky, the you know is is this an unprecedented statement, or have we, have you been seeing a pressure from China ratcheting up over time on Swatini? Well, it it all it's it started last year, towards the end of last year, when uh, suddenly it appeared in the media that some MPs had gone to China and that they were on the take with China. That was the spin given to it, and uh, I got a call from um, from the embassy saying they, they'd like to talk to me to to have an interview uh, in Pretoria, and I went there. And um, the ambassador, Song Tian, told me what exactly they want and what's going on. He said that they'd been trying to talk to, to, get, to, talk to the king to make a case for why the Swaziland should move or Eswatini should move to, to China and cut diplomatic ties with Taiwan. But uh, they had been unsuccessful in getting an appointment with him. So he said that what they were now doing is they were now taking the whole thing to the Swazi public. They want the people of Swatini to know that they've reached the end of their patience with Swaziland and that they're going to start taking action because they don't understand why uh, our country continues to recognize Taiwan when the world, rest of the world uh, now recognizes China. Uh, I asked him, obviously, why, why do you care about what Swaziland thinks, seeing as we're so small a country? And he said, well, the reason is twofold. One, because the principle of non-recognition of Taiwan is important to them. And two, because we were strategically positioned. By the way, Swaziland is not completely surrounded by South Africa, and this is important on how the Chinese see it. it there's Mozambique to the east, um, so we've got three quarters of the country surrounded by South Africa and one side, surround, uh, there's Mozambique. And they want easy access to the sea 
both in Durban, South Africa, and Maputo, Mozambique. And Swaziland is, is convenient as a, as a way to get there when they do business in South Africa, for instance. So they are a bit frustrated by the non-availability of that option. And uh, they want, and they, they are saying, in fact, he said to me, of the con- small countries that uh, still recognize Taiwan, Swaziland was the most important for them. Um, in terms of how they want to do business in Africa. So we, you could say we are the biggest among the smallest. And, uh, but before they do anything, he said that he wants the, the people of Eswatini to, to know that they have been trying and now they are going to put the screws on just to make the point until we give in. Well, I can see the optics for why this is important for... Uh, Ambassador Lin and the Chinese government, because they want to be able to say, we have the entire African continent now that recognizes China and does not recognize Taiwan. And you are the last holdout. So it doesn't really matter the size. It could be Nigeria being the last holdout. That would still be something that frustrates them because they want to put a bow on this and say, all of Africa recognizes China. But I guess the question, here's the, the straight up question, because last year or the year before, I forget, uh, Principe and Sao, Sao Tome were tiny little islands off, you know, geopolitically not important, but they switched their diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing. And basically the dominoes seemed to be falling. And so the question for you and the king is why, are, why is the king so adamant about holding on to relations with Taipei? Why not just accept the money, accept the, you know, all the attribution that goes and the recognition and all the, you know, the payday that will probably come if you switch your recognition to, uh, to China? Well, you know, I, I, let me answer you this way. You know, since around, um, let's say around 2010, maybe a little before when, when, when China exploded into the scene, in the world scene, as a powerhouse. I remember talking to some people in uh, here at Swatini, and they said even then that, look, we can't avoid the Chinese. They will eventually get here, and we will have to do something because they, we, a lot of things come from China. Uh, our banking system, our internet system, the cell phones, you know, they said we can't avoid it. That was then. What is strange now, even for me, is with what the Chinese are doing, we are still, well, for many reasons, I'm sure that are obvious, given what uh, the guy said in the opening, we're not having a conversation in Swaziland about China. You know, the media in Swaziland has been reluctant to engage on this issue because it is felt that the king holds strong views on the matter, that we should stick to um, uh, Taiwan, and uh, the Taiwanese, very, Taiwanese are very sensitive to anything that, you know, any discussion on the matter. And uh, so it, it's sort of, a, 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 you know, we, we are just not talking about it. I'm the only uh, media house, my, the one I work for, that has really taken up this issue to the public. And I've been made, so many accusations have been made against me. But um, we are not, so it's very difficult to know why we are not, even talking about it. The government will have tried to speak to a few cabinet ministers about it. There's one thing that seems to be clear is that we, this thing will have to happen sooner or later. I, it doesn't matter who you talk to, but why the king is not 
buying into this, why nobody's talking to him about it and, you know, saying, look, we, we can't do anything. I mean, I spoke to an MD of a bank and he was saying they are upgrading their systems right now in line with international norms. And most of the software and equipment they're getting is coming from China. So if China stops trading with Swaziland, there's going to be a problem with our banking system, which will put us in trouble with the international community and how money moves. So it, it's a problem that is there that we all see, but nobody wants to talk about it because nobody wants to offend the king. Now, the Chinese have got a view on why the king doesn't want to engage with them, but which among us here, everybody talks about. I mean, since the Chinese problem started, people are talking about it more and more, that, look, we know why the king doesn't want to listen to Taiwan, to China and wants to stick with Taiwan. But uh, we're just sort of, I think I would say, we are saying, look, if the king thinks it's in the best interest of the country to ignore China, then he will know what's best for us and he will know what, how to get out of the mess that we might find ourselves in going forward. Karin, um, you, in your article you mentioned that that um, Eswatini was hoping to host uh, the, an upcoming AU summit. Um, and uh, as I understand, one of the reasons why China is pushing so hard um, to to get Taiwan out of Eswatini is is also you know it it it, it does relate to how it it um, interacts with the AU. Um, you know, and and it, because because. If there is, if there are still um, still states that don't have diplomatic relationships with China, then it compromises, you know, the the AU, like dealing with the AU as a decision making body um, for for China. Um, can you unpack the AU connection in all of this? Yes, the AU connection has been puzzling me since uh, last year. I'm a regular reporter from AU summits. I go to the AU summit in Addis Ababa. Uh, every year uh, in January, January, February. And last year, we heard the story from officials, South African officials, that Eswatini is supposed to host the mid-year summit this year. It's a, uh, you know, it rotates from country to country and from region to region. And um, and then we heard but Eswatini couldn't afford to. Uh, there's been an article about this big convention center that Eswatini's been building since... Um, Oh gosh, I can't remember the exact year, but I think two, three years ago, they started building this big convention center with the view of hosting this summit and, and being able to accommodate all these, um, you know, all these heads of state. Um, and and suddenly it's kind of been stopping and it's been running over costs and it's been becoming unaffordable and uh, there's been some funding issues. Um, I'm not clear what, what that all is. And then sort of towards the end of last year and beginning of this year, uh, I heard that, no, the summit's not going to be hosted in Eswatini anymore. Um, it might go, I don't know, I think to Chad or, or somebody else. It was, it was open to negotiation. And this whole thing was supposed to coincide with uh, Eswatini chairing the AU, but for some reason it was decided that South Africa should chair the AU because they've got more, I think, capability, more money. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the reasons was behind that. So South Africa's chairing the AU this year and the summit's not being hosted in Eswatini. Um, and then one of the things when I looked into this convention center issue was that um, Taiwan was behind giving some of the funds to the to the convention center. 
And I've been trying to ask um, ministers or uh, you know spokespeople from Eswatini what's happening with this convention centre. And, and suddenly everybody's denying that it was ever meant to be for the AU summit. Um, it's just meant to be a big convention centre to attract tourism to, to Eswatini. I spoke to the tourism minister last year at Meetings Africa 2020, uh, last week at Meetings Africa 2020, and I asked him this question, you know, and, and he was very sort of evasive. He he um, he didn't really answer the question. So, so yes, yeah, so I think there are big issues um, that uh, China wants to put some pressure on South Africa, perhaps, to, as chair of the AU, to put pressure on Eswatini or to, to kind of treat them as outcasts in the AU because, because they're the only... AU country that doesn't have relations with China. So, so yes, I think that this um, uh, statement that came out at the end of last year was was perhaps also aimed at at South African leaders, at, at President Cyril Ramaphosa. And um, I've been told that Ramaphosa, that, that the Chinese have asked Ramaphosa to put some pressure on the on, on the king himself, and um, apparently has tried, but uh, but obviously so far he hasn't had any luck yet. But yeah, but it didn't. It didn't stop. Yeah, and I just want to add. It didn't stop Eswatini from attending the AU summit this year. I was there in Addis Ababa, and the king himself wasn't there. But uh, but some officials were there, and they were dressed up in in traditional clothes, and everybody was taking selfies with him. So uh, Eswatini's been quite defiant. Their posture's been quite defiant at the at the AU. It's interesting, uh, Karine, because you're talking about the geopolitics of it, and when your article came out. Several people who I know inside the the U.S. government at quite senior levels sent me your article unprompted separately and said, this is something that's on their radar. And it's interesting because even though Iswatini is a tiny little place, geopolitically uh, insignificant in the broader scheme of things, it is very representative of the broader struggle between uh, China and Taiwan, the U.S. and all this others. And let me just give you a quote from Josh Mazurvi who's an influential scholar at the uh, Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank in Washington. He covers Africa and Middle East policy there. And he tweeted, uh, soon after your article came out, one of the world's largest and most powerful countries, hashtag China, is bullying one of the smallest and least powerful, hashtag Iswatini. Beijing is closing all routes to a visa except for a South African embassy because Iswatini exercises its sovereign right to recognize Taiwan. Now, this is really interesting because the feedback that I got from U.S. government officials and that tweet from Josh indicate that I can see the United States really getting in there and trying to protect Iswatini from switching sides. Now, remember, Donald Trump got very, very angry at uh, El Salvador and Middle East and uh, Central American countries for considering and El Salvador actually did switch its uh, recognition. And he got really, really angry. And so this is an issue that is resonating in Washington. And I guess, Becky, my question to you is, uh, there is a U.S. embassy in Iswatini. Uh, do they have anything to say on this issue? Have you heard from them uh, either you know, informally or is the U.S. embassy making any statements on this as to what uh, they think the king should do? Uh, no, they haven't said anything publicly and informally. I haven't spoken to anyone to find out what their position is. But I do know that uh, among officials in Swaziland, there is that uh, uh, belief that, well, America is on our side, so we're going to be okay. Remember this. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's, America has, has a, uh, the U.S. has a new embassy in uh, Swatini. 
Um, apparently, it was one of the highest security areas that has. Um, it's it's more it's strategic for the for the U.S. in the Southern African region. It is it is high security. I've I've never been in, in it, but when it was built, uh, it was said that it's 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 something else. You know that you won't find anything like this in in Africa. That's what they said. So I, I guess. For for their interests, this this whole they have a a big interest in the matter, uh, but no, they haven't said anything officially, or I haven't spoken to the officials there because I do talk to them sometimes, and I haven't engaged them on this matter uh, at all, unfortunately yet. Becky, Becky, what was what was the reaction inside of of Eswatini to to this statement coming from the Chinese embassy? The the government, um, first of all. Sort of didn't believe that the statement was coming from the Chinese. They said uh, it was undiplomatic language that they used, and apparently they tried to verify it with the embassy, and the embassy uh, confirmed it. But having done so, they then sort of went into a shutdown because nothing has happened since then. I do remember, but I'm told that it was for different reasons. The media. Um, ignored the statement. There was nothing that was written in, in the newspapers about it. But I'm now told that the reason why that happened was because at the same time, the king was making, was opening parliament and they didn't want the Chinese thing to drown the king's speech. So, because it was more sensational what the Chinese had, had said. So they said to the media, don't touch that statement until we tell you. And that's what happened. Um, so it, that's why it sort of stayed in social media. We ran with it, but that was way after all the events. Um, so it's it's been it's it's a matter that's been subdued really in Swaziland. Um, this matter of the Chinese, as I said earlier, and one of the one of the arguments put forward, by the way, has been that we we've been friends with Taiwan for like since 1968 when we gained independence and we are not going to abandon our, our friends at their hour of need so we're holding out that is a that's a bold statement that's really bold Karine let me let's put the question about reaction to you what kind of response did you get in South Africa for your story and did you hear from the embassy by any chance I did get in touch with the Chinese embassy to ask them if the statement is real because what seems what is slightly uh, it caught me by surprise actually and and Becky's been i think at the at the receiving end of worse um tweets, but there was a big backlash on twitter and um there were tweets calling me um it said fake it's fake news and they're saying what do you expect from a journalist who was calling you that was it the embassy calling you that or was it uh trolls just online trolls no it was trolls I think it was trolls from a Swatini or um well, I'm not sure where they come from, but it's it's Eswatini sort of um, seemed like they're based there, or at least they they come from that perspective. And they said I was publishing fake news, and and what you know what can you expect from? They were trying to discredit me, saying I'm you know I'm the kind of journalist who would fall for anything. So I was really surprised at that backlash. I mean, in South Africa, it's not a big deal. In South Africa, we uh, you know we have a free media. We can say what we like. We um, you know, the reporting, I think our, our journalism uh, ethics, or uh, it's a bit different than Eswatini because we report what we like. We criticize the government. We're not as deferential, perhaps, as 
as the newspapers there um, are making a, an exception of Becky because I think he's been quite um, he, he's gotten into trouble for his reporting in Eswatini before because he doesn't he doesn't care <laughs> he reports what he likes so yeah but in South Africa we there's not been that much of a of a reaction I've been trying to probe South African um, officials about this Eswatini thing and and they're saying oh it's not a big deal um, you know that this Eswatini China thing they they're not really talking about it that much so so yeah so it's not really on their radar but i mean south africa is very close to china so um i guess perhaps behind the scenes uh, we don't want to be seen to be a big bully and and bully swatini into into you know who their friends should be but on the other side we would want to please china because uh because we consider china to be a, a fraternal country uh, to quote some government officials so so yeah, but but I'm quite surprised about the U.S. reaction uh, that you were talking about because I, I didn't pick it up here. But then again, I didn't ask. I, d- I didn't expect them to 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 have a big reaction. Uh, yeah, because Taiwan. Sorry to interrupt you. Taiwan is very important to the Trump administration, and much more important than it was, say, under the Obama administration. Remember that one of the first phone calls that Donald Trump made as president was to Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen breaking decades of, of precedent that the U.S. president does not take a side in the, in the China-Taiwan issue. Now with the, tra- the trade tensions between the U.S. and China and the security tensions, this idea that Josh Mazurvi brought up in his tweet, which was this big bully of a communist country picking on a tiny little innocent kingdom, you know, one of the smallest, really resonates, I think, in, in Washington. And there's a lot of appetite in Washington to challenge China and to protect uh, what it sees as a vulnerable country from from aggressiveness from China. I mean, that's just channeling what I think uh, what people in Washington would say. On Twitter, did you get any reaction or from outside of, you know, just generally speaking to your article? Um, generally speaking, the trolls were the, were the biggest, uh, it was the biggest reaction that I got. I mean, people, people were speaking about it and they said it's an interesting article. And I think this David and Goliath narrative uh, really captures the imagination um, so in that sense, yes, I think people, uh, you know, there's o- o- often a very negative perception towards China on the African continent. So they're kind of, you know, rooting for Eswatini, saying, you know, good, good for the small guy to, to keep out against this big bully. Uh, so, so that's the kind of reaction. But, uh, but I think in real terms, uh, in terms of economic progress and in terms of just having relations with uh, with the rest of the world, China, China would be important to Eswatini. Uh, also because of its proximity to South Africa and and the connections here, the networks here. Becky, um, for people who don't know Eswatini politics, um, can you give us a a little bit of an idea of what the the role of and the powers of the king is in relation to the parliament? Um, Does the decision to to go with China or Taiwan, who, who does it really come down to? Okay, I think as you said earlier, the king is an absolute monarch. It means just that. He runs the country um, alone, exclusive to everybody. What he says goes. And when he says we go with Taiwan, it goes with Taiwan regardless of anything that we might say. If parliament, parliament has been shut down, they've been banned from discussing the issue. The MPs who went to China did try to raise the issue in Parliament, and they were told that it's not open for discussion, and it was left at that. So it's, it's the king that decides what's going to happen. And the, the, the challenge is for 
the right people to go and have a sit down with the king and talk to him and convince him that maybe China is the right way or if they agree with him to tell China to go away. But in the end, it'll de- it all depends on what he says and what he says goes. It seems that 2020 is going to be a year that this really becomes an issue because, I mean, the statement from Ambassador Lin Songtian was not subtle at all. So before we, before we go, because I know both of you have a very busy day ahead of you, I'd like to get your thoughts about where does this go next? What's going to happen? I mean, I don't think Ambassador Lin issues a statement like this and then just says, okay, that's it. We're going to let this sit for a while. Uh, Karine, let's first go to you and then Becky to you. Where do you see as next? Karine? Well, I think the, um, this whole push has been rudely interrupted by the coronavirus epidemic and, and the crisis around that. And most press conferences we have seen in the past few weeks uh, at the Chinese embassy have been about either about this or about America and the trade war. So, um, so yeah, so I think it might have been interrupted by that. And also, perhaps China might have lost a bit of steam after the elections in Taiwan that went towards the the, the pro-Taiwan side or the anti-China side. So, uh, but I think they will continue to push. And I think once the coronavirus outbreak, once that's under control, we will perhaps continue to see um, Ambassador Lin making strong statements about Eswatini and, and I guess continue to lobby and, and perhaps push the business community more. And um, yeah, I think Becky could talk towards what will what will happen inside Eswatini with, between the business community and the king and how influential they would be. But um, I don't think this will go away soon. I, I think that, I think Karin is right about the coronavirus sort of killing the steam um, in a way. But one thing that is problematic, I think, in Swaziland is the fact that everybody you speak to that understands how the world works says we have to go to China. It makes sense for Eswatini. Um, there, there's consensus, and yeah, I'm talking from corporate leaders to politicians, even some cabinet ministers will tell you that China is the answer to our problems. Uh, maybe I, sh- I should tell you what uh, you know, Ambassador Song Tian said to me, he, uh, particularly in relation to the American question. He said to me... Um, First of all, Europe and America don't have money, at least not the kind that they have. Uh, So he said they won't help you in what is going to happen because that's why Africa is suffering now because those those two areas have have run out of money to help uh, Africa. And he said we are the only people who can help Africa financially and and get people out of their mess. And he said with, when it comes to Taiwan, he said, and we spoke here before the elections, and he said, look, we, we have a party we want to see win. That will give us back our country. But in the event that they lose, which is what happened, he said, we will take Taiwan by any means necessary. What is important is Swaziland must ask itself where it will stand when we do. That is the Chinese. They said they will take, there's no question that they will take uh, Taiwan at some point. It, it, they, he said it's inevitable. But in, here at Swatini, we, we, there seems to be consensus, at least among the people whose views should matter, that China makes sense to us at many levels. In fact, it's been said that China is our biggest trading partner after South Africa. But the Taiwanese have come out to say that's not true. 
but we do know that things like our the coaches for our railways uh, come from from China. We know that most of the equipment for our electricity provider comes from China. If China were to stop us from getting equipment for telecommunications and electricity would be in trouble. But I doubt that it will get to that. I really doubt it. I think eventually we'll come round to what is right for us. Um, and uh, depending on who our friends are, we'll, we'll, I think we'll eventually, I think even the king will eventually see what, what the options are. It's just that right now, what is slowing us down besides the coronavirus issue is the fact that among ourselves in Swaziland, we are not discussing this issue. And from what I'm told, nobody seems to be ready yet to go and face the king and say, Your Majesty, um, let's debate this issue and look at what's in it for the country. Nobody seems to have had the courage to do that yet. Well, it may not be on the king's mind, but it is definitely on the Chinese mind and it will not go away anytime soon. <laughs> so they, I think, I think to Karin's point, they're going to force the point uh, to make the king, make this a priority for the king. And it seems like they have a lot of levers they can pull to squeeze Iswatini. I just wanted to say that Song Tian said to me that uh, about that convention center you were referring to. He said, we are aware of this convention center that you're building. And he said, nobody's going to come. No friend of ours is going to come to your country and hold a meeting. He, he was clear about that. He said, so long as the African countries expected in your country are our friends, they are not coming unless you are friends too. So, but we still continue to build the convention center. Man, they, that is hardball politics right there. I mean, man, wow. I mean, it's like there's nothing subtle. We are in the Trump era of global politics now. I mean, that's what makes, I mean, but that's what makes Lin Songtian so interesting. I mean, you wouldn't get that from a lot of other, uh, you know, Chinese politicians. They would give you kind of abstract ideas, you know, tea leaves to be read and, you know, it'd be very indirect and... This guy, man, he just hits you right in the chest. <laughs> he spoke to me for wow. three hours. Well, there we go. Stuff. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, we know what about to decide. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. You know, that is really amazing. You know, if we ever get Lin Song Tian on our show, which I highly doubt that will ever happen, it will be the longest podcast in history. Oh yeah, and you be, won't uh, and you won't be allowed that, to ask a question because he'll answer your questions before you ask them. <laughs> he he just talks. He keeps. He, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I've been in That's that same incredible. position. Yes. Well, listen, I want to thank both of you for taking time out of your day. Uh, before we go, uh, a lot of our folks are going to be interested in following what you're doing. Karine, you are a superstar on Twitter. Uh, what is the best? What What is your Twitter name so that people can join the hundreds of thousands who follow you? My Twitter handle is just my name and my surname, Karine Duplessis, C-A-R-I-E-N-D-U-P-L-E-S-S-I-S. No joke, she's got 102,000 followers, so there's a lot going on on Karine's Twitter handle and Twitter feed, so uh, we really encourage people to follow what she's reading and writing these days. And Becky, uh, you are a great source for all new Swaziland. I've, I've been following you. Uh, where can people find you? Well, at uh, Peggy Makobo, which is B-H-E-K-I-M-A-K-H-U-B-U. That's my Twitter handle. I will put a link 
to both of Karine and Becky's Twitter handles in the show notes. I uh, want to thank you both for taking the time to talk about this very important issue. And uh, we look forward to coming back to you in a few months when there is an update, because something tells me this there's going to be an update on this. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for asking us. Thank you, Eric. Okay, thanks, thanks for having us. Kobus, as we were listening to Becky kind of recount how Lin Songtian was talking to him about Taiwan and the terms, that directness and the passion and the emotion that no doubt, I, if I was in that room, I could see that that would probably be an issue that, you know, this is an ambassador who talks a lot and gets easily kind of revved up. But I think on the Taiwan issue, he is probably amped up even more. And it brought me back to my graduate school days. Uh, I did my graduate program at the University of Hong Kong on Chinese foreign policy. And we did a semester up in Beijing at Beijing University, uh, one of the most prestigious universities in all of China. And I asked my professor, we were doing a, a Chinese foreign policy class. And I was, after class, I asked my professor, I said, why does Taiwan matter so much? And he's a mainland Chinese professor. And he said, to us, this was 20 some odd years ago, 20 years ago. He said, to us, Taiwan is our Jerusalem. And I said, would you really throw away everything that China has built up? I mean, incredible to become the world's second largest economy and throw it all the way in the name of 22 million people. And he explained something to me that really shaped my thinking on it. And I think really also articulates why people like Ambassador Lin and all Chinese take this issue so seriously. He said, over the history of, of Chinese history for thousands of years, the country has expanded and contracted. And when the country was weak, the borders fell apart and the emperor fell. And when the country was strong, the borders were strong and the emperor was strong. So the idea of Taiwan breaking away and declaring independence would be the ultimate repudiation of the emperor or today the president. And he would lose all credibility. The Communist Party would lose all credibility and the government would fall. This is one of the only issues in China that I've seen that really unites the entire country from the peasant all the way up to the president and the prime minister. I mean, there is no deviation on this that I've ever met in 25, 30 years of being in China. Everybody in China believes that Taiwan is an inseparable part of China. And it's just as we heard with Becky, it's only a matter of time that it comes back into the fold. Deng Xiaoping had a famous line that said, we can wait 99 years. Uh, Xi Jinping, interestingly enough, said, uh, we will not wait 99 years. We don't have the patience for that anymore. So Xi Jinping, like Donald Trump, is injecting a sense of urgency into foreign policy that we haven't seen before. And in some ways, I think the tone that we heard from Ambassador Lin reflects what President Xi has been saying on that front as well, that impatience is growing. And so it would, these, are, these are really complex issues. I think too, Cobus, that this is going to be brought into a broader US issue as well, that the United States is watching this closely because I don't think they give a hoot about Iswatini, but I do think that they look at this as a David and Goliath issue. They look at this idea of what Josh Mazurvi was saying of a big bullying communist country against a sovereign, tiny little kingdom. They don't like that. So this is going to be one of the interesting stories of 2020. You know, as you say, it, it fits into a very strong, very powerful 
political mythology in China, and it also fits or it's insertable easily. You know, kind of you can easily slot it into a, a David and Goliath narrative in the U.S. You know, kind of it's it's very easy to turn Iswatini into the the kind of freedom fighters of the Star Wars of of the Star Wars franchise. You know, kind of up against the Death Star. It's, it's easy to do that in in U.S. Myth- mythological terms. But the only way that you can do that is by completely disregarding what's going on in Iswatini itself, which is dire in lots of ways. Like Iswatini is in in it's it's in an absolute monarchy. The the king is rich. The king is like several Rolls Royces in his garage, rich. And the people in the Eswatini are dirt poor. Um, and the the country, in a lot of ways, like journalists that I know who who went there, South African journalists who went to Eswatini to report, have had their phones tapped. It is essentially a kind of a absolutely controlled, centrally controlled police state. So there's no way to put Eswatini into the, the this kind of little scrappy fighter for democracy against China narrative unless you completely ignore what's actually going on in, in Eswatini. And I think for that reason, it, it makes me concerned, you know, kind of that that it's it, that it is kind of being weaponized in this kind of way. What I would rather see is actual engagement with the situation in Eswatini, which in lots of cases, as we mentioned, mentioned some of the highest per capita HIV infections in the world, with some of the lowest, you know, kind of care being implemented. So, so for that reason alone, you know, I think it's it's more impo- it's important to engage with the actual people of Eswatini rather than with these kind of big political narratives. Did you hear what Becky said at the beginning of the discussion that they called in the media in Iswatini because the embassy couldn't get an appointment with the king? Yes, that's <laughs> I mean, revealing. That is, I mean, that if that's not but that's what we call in 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 the U.S. the Hollywood no, which is just basically to clear the calls and not take the phone call. And you gotta think that just infuriates a guy like Ambassador Lin Songtian. I mean, just infuriates him that you're not even willing to have the conversation. There's, there's nothing to be said. And so, and so in some way, so many ways, that statement, and I encourage everybody to read it. We'll put a link in our show notes. It's impolitic. It's direct. I think it's reflective of the, the language of our times in politics now that we're seeing a lot of this come out of the U.S. and Europe and populist governments we're not really accustomed to seeing it come out of the Chinese government that much, but boy, it sounds like an extended Lin Songtian tweet, to be honest with you. I mean, there's grammatical errors in it, but it's direct, and he's really, I mean, he's got hidden threats in there about the, the AU summit you know, issue in there. It doesn't seem like there was a lot of thought and strategy, and it was mulled over by the, the foreign ministry in Beijing and went back and forth, and the English was polished. No, it doesn't seem like that. It almost feels like, you know, Ambassador Lin said, take a memo, and he just dictated it out. That's what it seems like. But in so many ways, it's a marker now. It's officially a marker. So he's kind of laid out his terms that we're not going to budge. This is important to us. You're on our radar. We can make your life difficult in so many ways. Cutting off financing, cutting off the technology, cutting off the trains. Uh, that's just the above board stuff. There's below board stuff that can happen as well to make life difficult. And the way that it seemed like they were talking, oh, sorry, and the way that they seemed like they were talking was he was making it pretty clear. We can mess with you and we will if you force us into that, into that position. 
And, you know, the thing is... We know that they can do this, right? And if we know that China can put a lot of pressure on Eswatini um, and that, that China is a key partner, key trade partner, key development partner to all of the countries in this region. We also know that despite US and, and European rhetoric, it's not like the US is going to fly in, you know, like on angel wings to come and provide cell phone service in Eswatini in, in case the Chinese cut it off. You know, it's, you know, the, this is mostly a, a rhetorical stance coming out of Washington. It's not going to be backed up by, by real, you know, kind of concrete help, you know. Um, It'll be rhetoric. It'll just be another talking point that the U.S. uses to bash China in Africa. Yes. I mean, if, if something, if, you know, it'll just be on a list of many talking points, probably. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, you know, so, so for that reason, I think, I think the, the, the decision is going to come down to very kind of real African kind of calculations about what they can get from where, you know, and, and, and that in the end, I think it will, will probably kind of force the decision. Yeah, I mean, but it, at the end of the day, though, this is up to one guy. I mean, it's up to the king. There's, we just, and Becky was, was interesting as he said, we just don't know what the king is thinking. He hasn't really articulated or explained himself because kings generally don't feel any obligation to explain themselves. So it could be one of those things where he says, you know what, I'll take my six Rolls Royces and I'll let my country go down the tubes, even if China wants to strangle us. Or he can say, he can wake up one morning and go, you know what, Taiwan, it's been nice, but you know, this billion-dollar check that's coming from Taiwan, because that's what in Sao, you know, Sao, Sao Tome and Principe, that's what they did, was there basically was a giant check waiting for them. It says, if you switch, we will then guarantee development money, infrastructure investment, trade, and whatnot. I'm not sure it's lived up to the expectations, but some of it was there. And probably my guess is people were well taken care of along the way, just a suspicion not backed up by any of evidence. So this is, I mean, this is, you cannot overstate the importance of this issue to the Chinese. It's impossible. There is, there are few issues more important than Taiwan to the Chinese. And a guy like Lin Songtian is, he is a dog on a bone and that's a complimentary thing. He's going to just keep going on it. He's just going to, he's not going to go away. So this is definitely an issue that, that, will, that will be very, very interesting to follow. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that we've been writing quite a bit in our newsletter every day. You know, these are not the issues that make it onto the New York Times or into the Washington Post, into the mainstream coverage of China-Africa relations. But if you are following China-Africa relations, either Chinese foreign policy or African foreign policy, this is going to be a very important topic. And that's why I really urge you to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Cobus and I are putting it together every single day. It's $149 for a year, $75 a year for students and academics. Um, it's not a lot of money for what you're getting. And it really is, we're providing, uh, somebody said it's like a daily intelligence brief on China, Africa. And that's really what it is with insight, analysis, uh, exclusive content that you just won't find anywhere else. Again, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Try it out for two weeks. If you don't like it, you can cancel at any time. Uh, but just a note that this is the same newsletter now that's being read by uh, top journalists in Africa, senior officials in the State Department, senior officials in the Chinese government, uh, the folks at the at some of the Chinese embassies in Africa are all reading it. So if you want to get a sense of what these folks are reading every day, then subscribe to our newsletter. We're very proud that we have such a very diverse and influential group of readers. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. 
head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>